corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. It is good to be together. There are friendship pads located in your pews. Uh, most likely they're toward the outside portion of your pew. I encourage you to locate that. Uh, print your name legibly, letting us know that you're here. If you're a member or a friend of the church who's regular in worship, uh, just give us your name. If you are new with us today, we'd love to receive some contact information so that we can greet you with a letter uh, and welcoming you during this week uh, in a more personal way. We're really excited following worship today. We'll have a chance to gather as, uh, as a whole church for a picnic. I'm going to encourage you to go to Fifield Hall. And I'm going to also encourage you to find different ways of getting there, okay? So some may want to take McCall Way, which is right over here. Others may want to come further by the information desk. Maybe you want to walk all the way around to the outside and, and come back in. This will help with traffic flow and folks getting into Fifield Hall. This is not a, a game, really. It's more about uh, logistics. So I'd encourage you to do that. But please, everyone is welcome. Whether you've been a longtime member of the church or this is your first Sunday, we'd love to host you and uh, be with one another for this, uh, for this end of summer uh, celebration. Following worship also, we, uh, as it is our custom, have a Stephen minister who is in our chapel just outside of these doors off to the left who will be there to greet you and to meet you with the ministry of prayer. So if you have a particular prayer request that you would like to bring forward, they are ready to, to meet you there and to pray for you in that time. Well, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, and let us now prepare our hearts for the worship of God. As we continue in our sermon series on the parables this summer, we come to Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, found on page 73 in the New Testament in your pew Bibles. Hear now God's word. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, 
I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked, what was going on? He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then the older brother became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, listen, for all these years, I have been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your eternal word, for old, old stories that can speak to us in new ways and change us so that we may go out to serve you. Amen. Now, this may be the most obvious thing anyone says today, but this story is usually called the parable of the prodigal son. Was that kind of obvious? <laughs> Stay with me, it matters. This parable has inspired plays and movies and paintings like Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son and James Weldon Johnson's poem, 250 Years Later, also called The Prodigal Son. They're all centered, all the titles, all the focus on the younger son as the main character of this story. Maybe it's because his behavior and his choices, and then ultimately that he is welcomed back by his father, touch something deep in us. They get at our hopes and our fears, so we usually focus on him, the prodigal, the lever of home, the waster of fortune. The parable is remembered because of what happens to him, as if this is his story and his brother and father are just incidental characters. If we read this parable as if the prodigal son is the protagonist, then his older brother seems like an afterthought, like the cold-hearted party pooper who refuses to go into the feast but the prodigal son is no protagonist. And in fact, even though history has given him all the attention, this isn't just his story. The opening lines actually focus us on a different character. Jesus begins by saying, there was a man who had two sons. 
This is the parable of a loving parent, a father, a father who loved two sons and showered them with grace, grace beyond measure, grace beyond what they could ever have deserved. This story is about the joyful gift of grace, and it's a radical grace, one that forgives and welcomes in spite of the choices and behavior and the ingratitude of not one, but two sons. So this is not just the prodigal's story. It's the story of a father, a loving father, who's not just a kind old man, but a model of unconditional grace, the kind of love that could never be earned, but is so freely and joyfully given. The reason I say that the prodigal son is no protagonist is because he and his brother both seem to miss the gift of this extravagant grace that's being given to them. They don't treat their father with love or gratitude. They seek transactions from him and not interactions with him. They come to him seeking what they believe they're entitled to. It starts with the younger son who has the audacity to ask for his inheritance. Now think about that for a minute. Then just like now, inheritance comes to you when someone has died. So for the son to come and demand his inheritance was like saying, I don't care whether you're alive or not, Dad. I want what's coming to me. By asking for it, he thumbs his nose at tradition and the bonds of his family, and he sets off. He goes away to far lands and strikes out three times. First, because he uses up all his money on dissolute living. Then there's a famine in the land. And then, even though he would have eaten slop, no one will give him anything. The parable says that the younger son then came to himself and decided he would go back to his father's home. Now, this is a charged moment in the story, and interpreters don't really agree on what's happening here. Some think it's a moment of true repentance, that the young man goes home to be reconciled with his father. Others say that the prodigal is working an angle here, that he's rehearsing a speech that will appeal to his father, getting ready to say all the things he thinks he has to say to get financial support again. What is clear in that moment when younger son and father are reunited is that the father goes to his son first. He runs out to him while he's still far off. He embraces his son in love before he ever hears the rehearsed speech. The father offers compassion, not because his son says the right words, but because he loves him. Remarkably, the son never says thank you not in the whole parable, not when he gets his inheritance early, not when he's welcomed back, not when his father brings out finery and throws him a celebration. Now, be honest, if you gave one of your children their inheritance, and a robe, and a ring, and sandals, and a party, and they didn't say anything, you would have words <laughs> about their behavior 
But the prodigal seems to have missed the gift of his father's grace. Meanwhile, the older brother has been with his father all along. He's presumably had all his needs met, but when he sees this celebration that's happening in his brother's honor, he is angry and he refuses to participate. He's infuriated because his brother, the one who wasted his inheritance, is being given even more. All the older brother can see is that his younger brother is getting something again that he doesn't deserve. The older brother says to his father that at least he would have wanted a goat so that he and his friends could have had their own party, to which his father replies, a goat? All that I have is yours. All that I have. The father is withholding nothing, telling his son that he may have everything. And yet, like his brother, the older son expresses no gratitude. He too seems to have missed the gift of his father's grace. It was supposedly Teddy Roosevelt, though there's debate about this, who said, comparison is the thief of joy. Maybe you've heard that quote. Strikes me that it describes this scene pretty well as the father joyfully welcomes one son who could have been dead in a faraway land. The other son can see only what he hasn't gotten. A robe, a ring, a party, a fatted calf, a goat. This parable shows us that competition and comparison and attitudes of entitlement they are not new. Ours is not the first culture to think that if someone gets a gift, someone else has to lose out. Ours isn't the first time when joy in what we have is overshadowed as soon as we look sideways at what somebody else has. Ours is not the first moment in history when entitlement threatens to devour gratitude. As we see in this really old story, entitlement and gratitude are incompatible. You see, these brothers have everything they need and more. They've actually gotten what they think they deserve, but they still find no joy. They are not overwhelmed by their father's generosity. You know why? Because when we think we deserve something, we don't see it as a gift and we don't feel grateful when we get it. We're dulled to its goodness because we thought it should be ours all along. Academics and doctors and social scientists study this kind of thing, and they find that that dull feeling is a direct result of an attitude of entitlement, while gratitude, on the other hand, has the opposite effect on our psyches and on our health. In other words, grateful people are healthier people, physically and spiritually and emotionally. Psychology professor Robert Emmons at the University of California has made a whole career of research on gratitude. He says, gratitude as a way of life is a choice. 
We have to be willing to recognize and acknowledge that we're the recipients of an unearned benefit. This is especially rare among middle-class high school and college students who've grown up in a world that's revolved around them, one that allows them to build a platform on social media without displaying value, one that repeatedly tells them that they're awesome and deserve a trophy just for showing up. His words, not mine. This world cultivates a sense of entitlement. Students think they deserve any good they receive. So you see, entitlement is virtually the opposite of gratitude. As we feel more entitled, we feel less grateful in proportion. Now, I'm really not here to pick on middle-class kids or anybody else because entitlement is a wily shapeshifter and it comes into all our lives and it takes on all kinds of different forms. Sometimes it shows up as the feeling that we were passed over for somebody else. Sometimes it's hidden in our list of wants, whatever they may be, success, happiness, a big house, a high salary, the things we aim for because we think they should be ours. Sometimes entitlement is a defiant passivity, a refusal to do something, a refusal to act because we think someone should come to us. We would wait forever to get our fair share. Sometimes it pops up as disappointment, even with a wonderful gift, just because we had our hearts set on something else. Sometimes it's a sharp pain when we get bad news or when we're staring down some daunting phase of life and we realize that we had assumed all along that life for us would be happier or healthier or longer. Sometimes we know entitlement from the hollow, unsatisfied feeling we have even when we have everything we think we deserve. Whatever its form, entitlement is a wedge. It separates us as people. It separates us from our own capacity to experience deep joy. It dulls our sense of wonder that all we have, all that we are, our very lives are gifts. It clouds our interactions with each other and with God until we think of them as transactions and not moments of grace. Like the younger brother, it makes us think that we can have what we want when we want it. Like the older brother, it leads us to believe that our own merit makes us deserving. I confess that my own delusion of entitlement looks something like the older brothers. As much as I believe I'm a grateful person, as much as I delight in God's enormous gifts in my own life, entitlement creeps in. For me, it becomes something like an equation. I did X, so I deserve Y. But the problem with that equation is that it starts with me and it ends with me and it leaves God out. 
Entitlement is hard to see, friends, especially in ourselves. Mine slips into my thinking without me even noticing until, like the sons in this parable, something that should overwhelm me with joy doesn't. Or I realize that I've been so focused on what I think I've done that I haven't thanked God for what God has done. We all miss these little opportunities to live in gratitude. Whenever we think others, maybe even our church, owe us something, when we're rolling along and some jarring bad news comes our way and we realize only then that we had not been counting every day as a gift, or when we do get a promotion, or we do get the present we've always wanted, or we do get accepted into college, and our response is flat. The preacher and wonderful storyteller Fred Craddock tells a story in one of his sermons that strikes a lot of these same notes. It's actually his own story. It's about a time when Fred Craddock himself, a father of two, offered both of his children the same gift, a gift that was from his heart and that was deeply meaningful for him. And his children were totally disappointed. And yet he waited. Of course, he loved them anyway. He hoped that it would take hold for them. This is what he writes. It happened in our family that our daughter graduated from college in the same year our son graduated from high school. In a smooth move, I decided on gifts for both at the same time. It would be the same gift. I wanted to give them a poem. But I didn't want to hand them this poem, you know, photocopied or something. So I went to the university. In the art department, there was a calligrapher who wrote it on that brown paper that makes everything look like it's real old. It was a poem with the English title, The Main Thing. Craddock says, I wanted to give them a beautiful copy of this poem. So she made this beautiful scroll for me, $10 a piece, and I went by the dime store and got frames. It cost me about $12 or $13 a kid. But when it's your own kids, you know, you just blow it all out. <laughs> I wrapped those up, I put them on the bed, and after their graduations and all the pictures, they opened gifts and they saved daddies for last because it looked small and they knew there was something really special inside. So they got to the packages and tore them open, and there were these poems. And I can see the disappointment. I said, go ahead and read it. I said, John, read the poem. He read the poem. I said, you get it? He said, I don't get it. I said, Laura, you finished college. Explain the poem to your younger brother. And she read it and she said, I don't get it. So I said, well, just think about it. It will come to you. And so they took the gifts. Years later, Fred Craddock saw the poems hanging in each of his children's homes. And he said to them, do you read those poems? Both said, sometimes, but we still don't really get it. They said, dad. What is the main thing? Craddock writes in his sermon, I've never told them, but I'm going to tell you, and I hope you won't tell them because I want them to figure it out. 
But as far as I'm concerned, in all seriousness, to be initiated into the secret of the fundamental relationship with God that sets you free is gratitude. I've never known a person grateful who was at the same time small or mean or bitter or greedy or selfish or took any pleasure in anybody else's pain. Never. You can call it grace. You can call it gift. You can call it gratitude. But that, my friends, is the main thing. As we think about this old parable of a father loving his sons beyond measure, beyond decorum, beyond anything they deserved, I invite us all to think about where entitlement creeps into our lives and squeezes out gratitude. And I don't just mean a generalized gratefulness, like remembering to say thank you to cashiers or strangers who do us a small kindness. We're talking about choosing gratitude to God as a way of life, about recognizing the activity of God's grace before we get to a disappointment or some bad news that makes us take stock. We're talking about a conscious choice to live as people who have received the ultimate unearned benefit, eternal life, through the love of our Lord. We're talking about a countercultural decision not to live insisting on what is ours, not pressing to get what we think we deserve, but seeing everything we have and everything we are as a gift from the one who loves us. Just loves us, withholding nothing. Even when we are prodigal sons and daughters, short-sighted and self-centered, even when we are older brothers and sisters, comparing our lives to someone else's. That love is a gift that should make us pray and sing and shout our unending thanks to God every single day of our lives. That love is extravagant, and by God's grace, it is ours. Thanks be to God. Amen. Be the golden dress.